Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, Outtakes. This is the final outtake from last Saturday's episode of Sports Card Live that I was on with Jeremy Lee. Uh, Leighton Sheldon came on as an appearance, so you can uh, enjoy that as well. I did. Uh, thanks, sponsors, Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comsi.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So here it is, and thanks, Jeremy and Layton. Before we bring on Layton for the Vintage Spotlight, I wanted to get you to talk a bit also about what you refer to as the elasticity of premiums for the highest grades and the best players. It relates to what we were just talking about. If a jersey of a player is worth $50,000, but it can be worth $500,000 if it's photo matched. Apparently, nobody figured out you're not always photo matching the jersey to the photo. You're matching the photo to the jersey. You're doctoring the photo. Anytime there's that big of a differential between if it's photo matched or not photo matched, you're going to have some incentive to somebody. Say, How can I creatively get a photo match here? Just the same. Similarly, if something is doctored up deceptively and undetectably from a seven to a nine or even an eight in a vintage card, it can be a multiple, a multiple. If a card in a 10 condition was a thousand bucks and a nine was 900 and an eight was 800 and a seven was 700 and so forth, there wouldn't be the same incentive to try to goose something up a grade. It just wouldn't be worth it. But since the nine is worth a thousand and the 10 is worth 10,000. It encourages people. I believe because of what's happened publicly and been publicized is that those differentials will not be as stretched out. I think there'll be less of a, just like between threes and fours and fives in the vintage world. It's not multiples. They're, they're, it's incremental such that looking at threes and fours and fives, they're all in the ballpark of a Mike Moynihan. Who's trying to figure it regardless of the grade, which one do I like the best? But if those are seven, eights, and nines, the nine, regardless of how it looks, is 10 times what the seven is. And so I think those premiums will shrink over time. When somebody walks into your house and you say, I've got this Michael Jordan jersey, they're going to say, that's really cool. They're maybe not going to care whether it's photo matched. And they're never going to check it out, whether it was photo matched. They're going to say, that's a Michael Jordan jersey that's signed, that's uh, displayed nicely. I think in the hobby, we're splitting hairs. An 8.5 to a 9.5 to a 10, huge differences in the value that the public, they understand that 10 or a black label is the finest, the best you can get. If somebody walked in here and saw my 52 Tops Mantle, which is not here, it's at the bank, I, I think they would be impressed regardless of the grade because it's an iconic card. But I don't have to have a 10. I don't have a 10. I don't have a 9. I don't have an 8. I, I just think there's so much marketing and promotion going toward having the best. There's nothing wrong with that. But the average person needs to figure out how many people live in a house that's the nicest house in their city. Only one. Okay, And so the rest of people, are, are they miserable? No, there's lots of nice houses out there that are on different blocks that have different uh, landscaping and different things that they might want. And they just say, hey, this is the eye appeal that, that I'm comfortable with. And I'm proud of my house. I enjoy my house. Uh, but I'm not upset that I don't have the nicest house in my city. 
Is the hobby then giving too much credence to low population, high grade card where I think about the Wayne Gretzky rookie as an example, there's been thousands graded. There's two Opeachy PSA 10s, only two out of thousands. There's several nines that look nicer than those 10s. We understand that. But you, if, you, if, if a 10 is three and a half million and a nine is 120,000, do you see that gap closing? Absolutely. And it's not widely known. But you were there, and I was there, and the Opeachy cuts, the, the guillotine or whatever they're doing there, and, and even the controversy in grading uh, the sheet cut cards and factory cut cards, Jeremy. The, the nine is historically reasonable. The 10 is off the charts. It's an artifact of our COVID experience where things just shot through the roof because people were sitting home and trying to figure out that if these things are going to the moon, I'm going to buy the finest. But as you said, the nines are arguably as good as the tens. And then you have other grading companies as well with different philosophies of how they're treating the cuts and the edges and things like that. But it's a shortcut to just say, I'm looking at the pop reports. There's only two tens. I got one of them and my hat's off to them. And they paid what it took to get it. But some of these cards, I believe, when they go to sell them, whether it's in a few years, they may not go for as much. People may say, you know what, the 10 is not going to come up and I don't want to pay that much. It makes the 9 look like a stupendous bargain. Instead of mm -hmm. thinking the 9 is undervalued, people are, I think, likely to say the 10 is overvalued. And when that happens, there'll be a shrinking of these premiums. It's not insane because I understand the mindset but it's two different hobbies, Jeremy. There's a hobby for the really rich guys, and there's a hobby for everybody else. And I want the hobby for everybody else to be healthy. You're not typical. You're not swayed by the fact that just because it says it's a 10, it's the best one you could get. Mr. Leighton Sheldon, live from the Philly show. Leighton, you were talking about buying collections. I love buying collections. I bought... I actually can say tons of collections because it's many 2,000 pounds over all those decades. You talked about making a deal and talking to the guy and then coming back the next morning. I have never done a deal that lasted that long. When I was buying collections, time was of the essence. I had sure. very little time to evaluate and either throw out an offer or, or better to get them to throw out what are they looking for on some of the buying trips I did at some shows. So estate sales, wherever I was buying a collection, I just, I don't remember spending hours and hours or coming back later. You either did the deal. And so I had to very quickly analyze under a lot of pressure. And in those days, it was thousands of cards. So what do you do? Because you're a high volume buyer and, and yet you're sensitive and you're enjoying the experience, but it's hard to buy collections. And it's hard to buy them quickly. Times change day over day but then they change year over year and they change decade over decade. Like when did you buy your first collection? 1972. So we're talking about pre-internet yeah. decades ago. So admittedly the process then might be a little bit different than today. <laughs> a lot different, but exactly. that, and again, so they didn't the, have price guides, but, but my point is just the time that it takes to either build a rapport or establish a value is, is tricky. I always tell folks that what I do as far as being a professional baseball card treasure hunter is a balance of an art and a science. The science being the math, the art being a human being, and talking to folks. As you said, time is, is money. But I would say that I've also really appreciated 
the journey and the experience. And I think that comes across when I'm visiting folks, whether it be their collectors or just a family who inherited something. But I wanted to get back to the point you brought up about starting the 70s. So not only is it pre-internet, but you're maybe doing a deal in 1972 or 1979. I'm making up a number for 5,000 or for 2,000. Today, that number is 20,000, 50,000, 500,000. So you're asking about how can I take the time? The difference is that in a few decades, the dollars are enormous. I would rather take my time, be transparent, evaluate the collection, know that even if I lose the deal, I've left my best on the field. Even if it takes me till the next morning, I have a very high batting average. What allows me to feel comfortable and confident is I do a lot of legwork up front. And so really that's my secret. I'm not a Pop-Tart. I don't just pop out of the toaster. And if someone tells me they have pre-war cards, I hit the road, Jack. No way. And to be fair, I might lose some deals, some collections, but I'll tell you what I won't lose is sleep because I want to make sure that when I hit the road, I'm giving myself and my company the best chance I can to evaluate and potentially buy that said collection. That's insightful, uh, Leighton, because I, I, I really hadn't thought about the different eras of buying collections, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the, the 2000s, the 2010s, and, and this decade. It's evolved. And the, the amounts of money have, have continued to increase. The, the amount of knowledge has increased. I remember in the 70s doing buying trips, and you'd have a line out the door. Nothing accelerates the deal than saying, hey, guy, uh, I got five people waiting. Here's the offer. Do you want it or not? And, and these other guys are standing behind him lugging these boxes. They had nowhere else to go, Dr. Beck. Yeah, yeah. There was no eBay. There's no consignment seller. There's no auction house. Maybe the convention next year or longer. How did you get your start? Not so much in collecting, but how did you take that passion and parlay that into, wow, you know what? I really think the industry needs guidance and insight and a price guide. I think I'm more of a marathoner than a sprinter. So I wasn't trying to be hasty. I've always welcomed a big challenge and something that you could put yourself into. So in the mid seventies, I did everything. I had a card shop. I, I promoted shows. I started a collector's club. I was a dealer. I was a collector. But what really caught fire is when I could see that there were no price guides. There was no real cataloging that was, that was helpful and meaningful and current. So I thought I could do that. When I did it, it, it really became my life work. I had great teammates and I love all the sports. So it was a labor of love, but it surely was a labor. I had a skill set and, and I was in Dallas for the latter part of it. We're a great source of talented employees, although we hired from around the continent, actually. So I'm very blessed to be in the right place at the right time. So thanks, Layton. Your thoughts on how the hobby is treating Panini on the public forums? I believe Panini has done over the last 10 years what Fanatics is aspiring to do. I think they 10X'd basketball. Now for that, they're losing their license <laughs> and given to somebody else, and they're being called incompetent by the, the new incumbent, and they're being sued by a number of entities and, and accused of not knowing what they're doing or doing a bad job, they're getting a pretty harsh treatment. They're looking like a small company that's getting beat up. They're a multi-billion dollar international company that's had some setbacks. It's amazing. Some of the Panini haters out there, and there's Upper Deck haters and Leaf haters and Fanatics haters, but 
if I were running my company and I lost a bunch of employees who went to a competitor and I had a bunch of lawsuits, it, it'd be tough to keep my eye on the ball. So cut Panini some slack. It doesn't do anybody any good for Panini to do poorly or Fanatics or Leaf or Upper Deck or anybody else. I didn't want to take market share, steal customers. I want to create new customers. And if every company thought that, then they would see that Panini's loss could be Fanatics loss because people could lose confidence in the category. This is a very positive hobby. And when we spend all this time about negativity, it's a turnoff to new people. You acknowledge it's there, but it's a very small portion. Let's hone in on one negative narrative. The sky is falling. The hobby is dead. No one's buying cards. The prices are going to zero. When I hear that, I think this hobby's been around for 140 years. It's cyclical, as you mentioned earlier. It's black and white thinking, like we talked about. The hobby will last longer than me. I will die before the hobby dies. Jeremy Lee, you will die before the hobby dies. The hobby's going to be around a long time. Now, that doesn't mean prices are going to be continue to go up. They might or they might bounce around. But people love cards, the tangibility of cards, the collectability of cards. And to focus on the negative in a black and white way that it's all going to go to zero, that's just not going to happen. Most people, the, the hobby is going to outlive them. Their cards are going to have value when they die. Do I give them to my kids or sell them off or do something else? Whether they get more money or less money than they think right now, I can't say. But in the meantime, enjoy the hobby. Enjoy the hobby. What are your thoughts on whether Fanatics acquires or starts up a grading company? Is there too much conflict of interest there? Or can you see a way that could work and the hobby would be okay with it? We, we can say all we want, but they can do it. I think it's likely they will do it. And I do not believe it's as much of a conflict of interest as people think. The same logic, when we were doing the price guides, we couldn't do grading because that would be a conflict. You're either going to have integrity or you're not. If Fanatics gets into grading and they do it with a lack of integrity, it damages their whole brand. These smart guys running companies know the brand is really important. And any perceived conflict of interest, hopefully they would defeat by going above and beyond to show transparency. So it might happen, guys. And if it does, the sky will not be falling. There you have it. Dr. Beckett, I'm going to let you go and to make sure that everything is good in the house there with your wife. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to go from being the, the, the smartest guy in the room to going to bed with my wife and being the second smartest person in the bed. <laughs> <laughs> I love it.